Hi, I'm Lindsay. I'm Katie. This is Philip. Howdy, this is Chelsea. And this is Hanging Hanging with with My my Cronies. Hanging with My Cronies is a monthly podcast where we discuss the sort of weird and interesting applications surrounding chromatography. For this episode, I'm going to talk about the connection between chromatography and cats. Does this have anything to do with the fact that you have cats, you're allergic to cats, but still have cats, have a cat purse, <laughs> cat earring, cat butt fridge magnets, you cat guys, skin rug. cat candles, kitty slippers? <laughs> so we've all heard of a crazy cat lady, right? We have Katie. There's sort of this caricature of a person who just keeps hoarding and hoarding more cats, which I would love to do. But actually, there's a disease that might be responsible for this. And today I want to talk about it. It's called toxoplasmosis. Have you guys heard of this? Yes. No. You have? I have. Okay. It's one of the things that they tell you. Be careful with the literature. That's how I know about it. Toxoplasmosis is an infection that comes from a foodborne parasite. I'm just going to refer to it as T. gondii throughout this uh, podcast, probably. Um, So primarily, humans can catch this through eating animal meat, but it's really interesting the kind of side effects that some people believe are associated with it. Like I was referring to this hoarding of cats or this really strong affection for your cat. And of course, there is a tie to... Chromatography. Of course. So we're going to talk about cats and chromatography a little bit and this sort of uh, mind control parasite that you can get from them. (coughs) You said you've heard of this before. Do you have any background into what it... Do you know much about it? Have you heard anything? Uh, I know you get it from cat poop. You do? Mm -hmm. So try not to eat cat poop. Exactly. In the podcast. And when you say from (laughs) animal meat, do you mean like cat food or the meat of the animal? Actually, so if we talk about the life cycle of a T. gondii, really hard word for me, um, the parasite actually sheds its eggs in cats. And so in cat feces, other animals will eat it. Most commonly, we hear about rats and birds because they're part of the life cycle. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. But with what you're talking about, livestock can also eat this. And so it can be transferred to humans through undercooked meat. That's what I was going to say, because I don't know any humans that eat cat poop. So I wondered how the transfer was to humans. <laughs> there may be some out there, but <laughs> typically for humans, it's transferred through um, infected water, raw meat, maybe getting it from like gardening in your garden bed, if cats use that as a litter box or changing the litter box, things like that. Isn't another method of transmission, if you like change the litter box and you get it on your hands and then you rub your eye, can it infect you through the eyes? I know they say ingestion or inhalation, but maybe eyes too. I'm just, I'm not sure, but it's kind of gross to think about. Who doesn't wash their hands after they've emptied a litter box? Apart from crazy cat ladies. I think that's probably Why'd you point who? at me? <laughs> <laughs> you, you said that you can um, get it through eating cat poop. What about dogs? You know, dogs eat a lot of cat poop are they affected they do (laughs) totally so (laughs) livestock dogs humans all of these are what is known as intermediate hosts so the cats will actually you know their feces contain the eggs and the eggs have pretty thick shells um, but the eggs to actually be able to transmit the infection to somebody have to sporulate and so that takes like one to five days so the cat has to basically poop and then if another animal eats it right away they're probably okay um, 
But if it waits a few days, they'll actually become the intermediate host. And it will sporulate. Once the intermediate host, and if we're talking about in the life cycle of keeping it going, so a bird or a rat, um, eats cat feces, it then can make its way back to the cat's gut because the cat will eat a bird or a rat if it's not like a vegan grass-fed cat who lives... So not a Berkeley cat. Right, not a Berkeley cat. Not where we are currently recording, (laughs) but other wild cats. Yeah, so once it's in the cat's gut, because the cat eats it, it'll mature and it'll mate and sexually reproduce. So it only sexually reproduces in cats. The parasites. The parasites. So, you know, at that point, eventually the cat will poop again and the life cycle continues and continues and continues, unfortunately. So does a parasite harm cats? The parasite could harm a cat that has a compromised immune system. So it can harm any animal that ingests it with a compromised immune system. There may be other side effects related with it as well, but in terms of death, um, I think that's really only in pregnant animals or compromised immune systems, so already sick animals. And it gives cats the power to control humans and take over the world. Cats will control your mind. (laughs) So... You know, normally rats and mice, you know, they don't like cats. They run away from them. So what causes them to, what causes the cat, how does the cat eat the, eat them? That's a great question. So there have been studies done on rats and mice specifically, where they took non-infected rats and they put them around cat urine and just rats and mice in nature are scared and run away when they smell cat urine. So they, they had a control of non-infected rats and they had a, group of also infected rats. So once they're infected, they actually develop an attraction towards cat urine. So what they found is that these rats both had a loss of coordination and an attraction to cat urine. So they would, you know, kind of stumble like they're a drunk rat or something on toxoplasmosis up to wherever cats are urinating and sort of hang out there. And so they were easy prey for cats to eat them again, which kind of (laughs) aided that cycle of toxoplasmosis going around and around. So... The sort of mind control aspect or neurological effects in rats is really apparent if we look at some of these studies. And so part of the reason why they're curious about if humans have this effect, too, is because of what we see in rats. So if you start dabbing cat pee behind your ears in the morning, (laughs) we know there's a problem. Or you might have rats following, then you're just a Pied Piper. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, the Pied Piper. Pied Piper. It's most dangerous to humans as well to get back to the sort of death thing we're talking about because the parasite can enter your bloodstream and it could infect any kind of cell. And this includes your immune cells. So in these cases, um, when your immune cells are infected in this way, they act sort of like a Trojan horse into your immune system. So they sort of sneak around and they can invade um, specialized tissues like your muscle cells and your brain cells, which is why they're curious about what effects are shown. Got a question. Is this an intracellular parasite? Yeah, I think it. I think, I think it's that's a, what that would suggest. Yeah, it's an intracellular parasite. So that, and then it doesn't harbor anything on the cell, so that the immune system can't find it. That's so how it, it sneaks around. You're saying? So yeah, it I think uses so. The cells as transportation. Uh, yeah, so like I think it infects blood cells initially, and then that's what transports it throughout the um, body, and then inter. Um, and then infects other cells as well, but that's mm-hmm. how it is: is that it's it's intracellular, it replicates within that that cell, and then bursts open, and then right. 
is propagated. Like alien. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like alien. (laughs) So once it gets into your central nervous system, it can actually hide out inside of cysts in in your tissues. Um, And if it does, then it'll infect you for life because it can kind of hide out there for a while. And then it can, you can start showing symptoms at other times. When your symptoms show up, you probably don't notice it. Or most people don't know they have an infection because it presents like you have the flu. So if you're not immunocompromised and you don't have really terrible symptoms where you're like bedridden and very obvious loss of coordination and things like this, then you probably just think you have a cold. But what if you find yourself thinking, oh, that's a cute poster of a kitten hanging in a tree. Is that a symptom? If you start following cats around campus, we'll know. If you're infected with this over time, it can start to further um, kind of mess with your immune system and these cysts can become active. But this is especially harmful to pregnant women who are infected since they can pass this on to their baby. I don't think they necessarily pass this on, but there's a very high chance that you can if you're infected during pregnancy. And the further you are in your pregnancy, like if you're infected in your third trimester, the worse um, some of these side effects can be from it. So you can have things like a miscarriage, unfortunately, or you could have some other birth effects, which is why we tell pregnant women a lot of times not to garden and not to clean litter boxes Mm -hmm. and things like that. I thought it was just because it was difficult for them to bend down. I tried to convince my husband that women weren't supposed to clean litter boxes at all, regardless of if you're pregnant or not, you know, just in case. Or do the dishes or... It worked for a couple of years. (laughs) He's on to me now. (laughs) Finally. So the ancient Egyptians worshipped cats and they're everywhere. Has anyone ever autopsied a mummy? Was Cleopatra infected with toxoplasmosis? Exactly. Exactly. It's a great question. I mean, what's the Sphinx all about if it's not that? Maybe we could do some forensic science on uh, sarcophagi. Yeah. (laughs) So what are the psychological effects of being infected with toxoplasma? So this is sort of a controversial subject around this infection. Um, There's arguments on both sides. Some people say that there's no solid evidence showing that there are major neurological effects. And other people believe that it even correlates to things like how many car accidents you'll get into, whether you have toxoplasmosis or not. A lot of these psychological conditions, um, they're referred to as the manipulation hypothesis. And this is the thing that we were talking about with the rats being attracted to cats who are infected. So some people theorize that the parasite is confused by the anatomy of the human brain. And so it modifies the brain not just to make us love cats, but also to make us just sort of full on crazy, like act a little erratic. Well, like so an infection in rats causes it to increase its risk behavior. So like the rat will start to do more and more risky things such as attack cats. So there are lots of videos on YouTube of mice and rats attacking cats. And it has to do with the fact that they're actually infected with um, toxoplasmosis. It's kind of scary, actually. It's really interesting to see. It'd be interesting to find out if, you know, I, I don't know if toxoplasmosis, you know, it affects the tissue and goes into the brain, if it causes an increase in risky behavior in humans. And that's the reason why they can cor- correlate it to higher number of accidents, because you're taking more and more risks as you're driving your car. So Chelsea sort of hit the nail on the head there. Um, the big question is like, 
are there these neurological issues um, or does it cause some other disease that we're not recognizing um, where they're trying to study what effect it has on our behavior when we're infected with it. So when cats are infected, they actually only lay eggs at one time over a 14 day period. I didn't know cats laid eggs. <laughs> or sorry, <laughs> sorry, let me rephrase. When cats are infected, they only actually shed the T. gondii eggs for a 14 day period. So outside of that, they would have to infect you within that window. Um, and then they have to sporulate for that one to five days. And if you somehow ingest cat feces outside of that window, you're in the clear. <laughs> So how did cats, how did this synergy first develop between the parasite and the cat? Because a cat couldn't have eaten cat poop. How did the first cat get? Well, I mean, it's a parasite, po right? Probably so from eating a Chelsea, you studied parasites, a, right? A mouse. Yeah, I did. I, uh, so I worked in, in a lab that st uh, studied uh, Trypanosoma brucei, which is another parasite that um, is extracellular. So if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, you're going to have parasites that evolve over time and they're going to have their species of choice that help differentiate them. So, you know, they're a more general parasite long, long time ago, and now they've infected a cat and they've then optimized their way of getting sexually replicating through the cats and then having this um, evolutionary affinity towards the rats and the rats attacking the cat because it means that the cat's going to be able to kill the rat and eat the rat. So... So it's sort of like the chicken and egg question, which came first? Always Definitely the egg. Definitely the egg, just Always not out egg. of a chicken. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the big question is, is there some unrecognized disease in people who are infected with T. gondii that's causing them to do crazy things like hoard cats or, I don't know, have rats follow them down the street like Philip was suggesting earlier? Be erratic drivers. <laughs> yeah, or getting into more car accidents. I'm just wondering, like, how common it is for someone to be infected with this because, I mean, like you said, it's asymptomatic for the most part. Whenever you first get infected, it's kind of like cold or flu-like symptoms, and then it just kind of persists. It doesn't necessarily cause death. It just is there. So, yeah. So the CDC actually estimates that 22.5% of the human population over 12 has been infected at some point. And the way that they test for this is serologically by looking at the T. gondii antibodies in humans, because you will carry those for life even if you don't have, um, what is it, systemic disease right at that point. So you can, as a human, can you clear the infection so that it's not a persistent parasitic infection? You can, you know, your body reacts to it and then eventually it's able to be cleared? I, I don't think, yeah, I don't think you'd be cleared of it. I think it would always harbor in your immune system. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's like... Um, like cold sores, they always harbor in your in your immune system, and if you're stressed or or somehow your immune system becomes compromised, then you might start to see symptoms again. Yeah, I think you usually carry the antibodies, especially because it gets into your tissue. Mm -hmm. And in terms of cats and dogs, um, thirty to forty percent of U.S. cats they say are carriers of this, but only one percent are shedding at any given point in time. Just to kind of lower the fear factor but here. How a many bit. cats are there in the U.S.? Uh, Six point seven billion. You I'm, said that made so confident. I'm making that number up. It is occasional that we see cats so that are reactivated and will shed more than once, but in general, they just for 14 days once they're infected um, will shed eggs. So. 
I think your risk is sort of low, um, but it does exist with coming in contact with this. And you're meaning that that's it, like for the rest of their life, they won't shed any more eggs? Correct. Um, I talked a little bit about the urine study they did on rats. Can you guess what they did with humans? Maybe they tasted the urine? No. (laughs) Unlike the insulin episode, they did a human sniff test with humans as well, where they had non-infected males and females smell cat urine, measured, you know, their sort of, did it spark joy in the words of Marie Kondo? (laughs) So they asked them how they felt about the cat pee, uninfected. They also took a group of humans who were infected with the parasite and they measured relative to what the non-infected group said and males often reported a higher, how do I say this? um, Attraction towards cat urine. I don't know if that's the best way to put it. And then in females, they saw a lower tolerance towards it. So men like cat pee. Good to know. Once they're infected. Once they're infected. But these results are sort of inconclusive. Well, would you volunteer for a study where you're smelling cat pee? I already have two cats. I smell cat pee. We know. We can smell it. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Can Candace come back on the podcast? (laughs) There was another study done at the University of Leeds where it showed that T. gondii infection in the brain cells led to higher dopamine dopamine levels because the parasite makes a certain enzyme that controls how dopamine is made. Dopamine helps regulate parts of the brain that have to do with things like pleasure, um, but too much dopamine in the brain could be overflooding and is often linked to things like psychosis or schizophrenia or other um, sort, of, sort of mental illnesses like that. I mean, have they looked at if schizophrenic patients have a higher infection rate? Because you mentioned 22% of people and that was globally. Yeah, that's globally. globally. It's 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 very very common. I probably have it just because I was around barn cats and all kinds of crazy stuff. You know, well, not crazy stuff, but farm animals growing up. Yeah. So because there's so much research around schizophrenia, if you are toxoplasmosis positive, then you are at a higher risk of schizophrenia. But on the flip side of that, the majority of people with schizophrenia do not have toxoplasmosis. So. You know, we do see links, but when you look at it the opposite way, it doesn't necessarily, it's not like correlation is causation okay. sort of thing. Maybe um, it's a, maybe it could be like a subset of schizophrenia. Yeah. Or it could be something like a genetic predisposition towards some of these diseases um, like schizophrenia that just because of your socioeconomic status or something, you may have some link. So, so how does this um, tie into chromatography? Like, can you... St- put a cat in a column? (laughs) (laughs) Not exactly. So like most diseases, when you're doing drug development, and there's a lot of work done around antibiotics and vaccine for toxoplasmosis, um, chromatography is used to either characterize the drug, whether that be an antibody, or done to purify whatever antibody or, you know, biomolecule you're looking at to treat it in a vaccine. There's only one antibiotic right now on the market for this, um, and it doesn't help cure cats or rid it from their system. It just helps lower or shorten the amount of time that they shed the eggs for. It also helps reduce a lot of the symptoms that are associated, um, whether you notice them or not. During the development of this, reverse phase chromatography was used to characterize um, the drug while they were developing it. On top of that, a lot of research is, has been done since like the 60s, from what I could find, um, to look for a vaccine for this. 
and they've had a little bit of success with it. There's one like FDA approved vaccine. Um, but as they're looking for more vaccines to treat, you know, humans and animals, um, they commonly use affinity chromatography to help purify the uh, antigen or the IgGs. So it's a biologic vaccine. Yes. Yeah, this um, puts more weight in the fact that this is an intracellular parasite, because if it was extracellular, then you would be able to just, um, you know, find an antigen, right, target it, and then and then weaken it, and then stick it into the uh, into humans, and then they'd be able to be immunized against it. But because it's intracellular, we're not able to actually detect it and, and you know develop antibodies against it. Yep. And even before you can apply the treatment, um, which, you know, chromatography is definitely used to help develop, just to find out if it is a danger to somebody right at this time or not is really hard. So we talked about how they can detect it in people through serology uh-huh. studies. Um, but serology just tells you if you have the antibodies in your system. Right. And those antibodies don't necessarily mean that you are currently having... What is it, like a systemic disease? Right, it just meant you were exposed at some point. Exactly. So I know we talk about IgGs and stuff a lot during work because it's commonly purified by our customers, but the difference between IgMs and IgGs can actually tell you because IgMs occur um, pretty early in the disease when IgGs are typically um, a sign of something more chronic. So that is another way. Um, there are things like, I think even Byrad cells in ELISA-based assay to determine if livestock, I think the food science division has something to test livestock, so the meats, before they're put into the market to see if they are infected with toxoplasmosis. Because you could imagine if you buy steak, you like it rare, you don't want that infection to be present in your livestock. You get a flu shot and you're given the pathogen that your body then builds up a immune response to you raise antibodies to it they're circulating in the body then so the next time you're exposed to it you have a response so can you immunize against toxoplasmosis to build up an antibody in your body yeah so, so the- should we be giving our kids sorry a little bit of cat poo early on in life so they can build up their immune system. I don't know about that. Um, But to your point, as we're talking about this, there have weirdly been some positive effects of the parasite of the T. gondii. So it can help protect against chlorosis, but also they found that the parasite's immunological response or its immunological power against cancer tumors um, have put them on to sort of trying to make a vaccine against cancer using this parasite. The infection actually strongly induces your Th1 immune response. And they know that this particular immune response is strongly associated with increased cancer survival rates. So there may be sort of an upside to the crazy cat lady syndrome. (laughs) So an apple a day keeps a doctor away and cat poop a day keeps cancer away. Cleaning a litter box a day keeps cancer away. We should trademark that and put it on our columns. Yeah, so basically the immune response that is initiated through having this is the exact immune response that you would want to fight cancer, which is a really interesting link, kind of a weird twisted turn for toxoplasmosis. So do cats ever get cancer? Yeah, absolutely. So immune specialist over there, Lindsay, do you know anything about the Th1 response and how that works with the immune system? Let me see here. The Th1 cells, they... um, they are the type of T cells that are kind of for our um, 
adaptive immune system. Okay. So, so I'm assuming that um, as they're developing this vaccine, the Th1 cells see see the the antibody. They will um, they'll remember it. And then it'll go through a whole other immune process where um, and then they'll basically if they see like a cancer tumor that's expressing a specific marker, if they see it, the um, T cell will send off other signals to bring in other cells to kill it. Okay. Exactly. They say it produces a pro-inflammatory response in your system, um, which is responsible for killing like the intercellular parasites and for perpetuating your autoimmune response. Right. We don't have the cancer vaccine yet. Um, It's, you know, there's a lot more research and investigation that's required before they can put this into clinical trials. Um, But yeah, it's kind of like maybe a positive turn for this parasite that has caused also a lot of issues like over time. So we should embrace the crazy cat ladies and not shun them. Go out and adopt more cats. And of course, with like, you know, cancer research and looking at vaccines, I'm sure there's plenty of other opportunities, depending on what route they take, um, to use chromatography even further, both on the characterization and the purification side. So have you ever seen one of those videos where the rat attacks the cat? No, but I'm definitely going to go home and watch one. Does Tom and Jerry count? <laughs> I'm picturing like <clears throat> gangs of New York, but rats. No? Yeah. So tell us more about how these symptoms are exhibited, Kate. <laughs> um, do you really want me to tell you more? Because <laughs> I think I covered all my bases. I think you're exhibiting some. <laughs> While there's a lot of debate around the neurological effects of toxoplasmosis in humans and whether us crazy cat ladies may have this parasite as a scientific explanation, the usefulness of these treatments and the value of chromatography in developing these treatments isn't debated. Agreed. Couldn't agree more. Oh yeah, and in the meantime, get a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. How was that? That was manic. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe at biradiations.com to hear our new episodes. And as always, thanks for hanging with us. This podcast is an original creation of Biorad Laboratories. Biorad is a trademark of Biorad Laboratories Incorporated in certain jurisdictions. All trademarks mentioned herein are the property of their respective owner.